like many other Silicon Valley types who migrated away from denser cities during the first few years of COVID, I also called the open shores and open spaces of Miami home for a brief period in the pandemic. I had a front row seat when Miami declared its intention to become the top crypto city in the country in the summer of 2021. I was there for the launch of their proprietary digital token, the Miami coin. I was there for numerous crypto boasting conferences. I was there for the crypto takeover of the annual Art Basel scene. And I witnessed firsthand the real life transformation of average lay people into overnight paper millionaires. But just as quickly as the hype of Miami's cryptomania came, it went. Retreating from the city like low tide as crypto markets tumbled. Crypto has had its day. Fortunes have been made and remarkable failures played out. And still, it is one of the most remarkable evolutions of currency of our time. And one that can be easy to lose track of as well. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, and this is TED Tech. Today, we're going a little long to share this fascinating conversation from November of 2022 between TED curator Simone Ross and crypto journalist Laura Shin. Let's listen in as they discuss some of the major developments regarding this volatile invention and why they think it's here to stay. Please welcome Laura Shin. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Simone. Great to have you here on um, what has not been a very dull couple of weeks for crypto. Um, so I'm going to get us started um, about going down this rabbit hole that is crypto. So first question to you, Laura, is how did you fall into the crypto rabbit hole? Back in 2015, I was a journalist covering personal finance, actually, and I was a contributor at Forbes. And I had been covering that for a few years, and I frankly was getting a little ready to move on to something new. I wasn't learning a lot of new things. And my editors didn't want me to necessarily leave uh, the section for some other sections. So they said, hey, we have this idea. What if we do a Forbes FinTech 50 list and you can head up the list with another reporter? So she and I divided it into different categories. And I took the category of digital currencies and I just became completely obsessed. And here I am seven and a half years later, still just as obsessed as ever and loving it. Great. Well, it's definitely a great thing to be in right now. So um, that begs the question for me. So how is sort of fintech different to, to crypto? Because a lot of people sort of define it as, you know, crypto is sort of like magic beans or magic internet money that is kind of pulled out of, of thin air. So so what is crypto and, and how would you explain it in the simplest terms to, you know, my parents, let's say? So fintech is what I would call a digital veneer on the decades old existing financial system that has been around kind of like from the 70s, you could say. The pipes of that system uh, mm -hmm. were created then. And crypto is a completely new technology. It's like leapfrogging. It's it's just something fundamentally different. And with, um, you know, fintech, you know, when you look at your Venmo or whatever, what's happening in the background, it might look slick and it might seem fast, but what's happening in the background is still kind of the same slow 
um, basically, frankly, inefficient way of managing finances, whereas crypto is kind of a little bit more real time and, um, yeah, uses uh, basically fancy cryptography and um, is truly digital at its core, whereas fintech is, you could imagine it as more like almost like a paper version that they just have, you know, a uh, kind of a digital um, version of. Uh, whereas, like I said, with crypto, um, the money is inherently digital. It's not like paper money where we have a digital representation. Right. And you you truly believe that crypto is the future, despite everything that's happening right now? I would say so, in the sense that just in the course of my own lifetime, if I look at how I use the phone, <laughs> you know, when I was young, I used to uh, pick up a corded phone, sometimes attached to a wall, you know, drive my parents crazy by being on it at all hours and talking to my friends forever. And then they, you know, they couldn't be on it. I mean, we did call waiting didn't even exist when I was little. Right. And if I look today at what my phone does now, I mean, come on, it's just, you know, it's my camera and, um, you know, I can message people, I can email people, I can do my finances, I can write like whole documents in there. So, um, you know, I feel that when you have something that is technologically superior, it's really only a matter of time before it it wins out. And of course, I understand, yes, Betamax didn't win over VHS, but still, regardless, like that technology became adopted, even if maybe the the best version of it didn't win out. So in the not too distant future, we're going to start to see different utilities that we don't currently see from crypto. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're already seeing that, you know, whether or not you think they're valuable is a different question, but um, certainly just in the seven and a half years I've covered this, I've seen completely new things that have not been witnessed before in history be enabled by crypto. Um, so what do you think, because obviously right now crypto has a little bit of a bad rap, there's a lot going on. Um, what do you think the biggest misconception is about cryptocurrency? So well, I would say actually that the first one probably is that it is a currency. The reason why that kind of general term is used is because the very first crypto asset was a currency, which is Bitcoin. And so when I use that more general term crypto assets, what I'm saying is that you can have similar, um, you know, uh, items that aren't currencies. And so let's just take the two most popular of these. One is Bitcoin and the other is Ether. So with Bitcoin, as we just mentioned, it was designed to be like a currency. And it actually has a few different attributes. And one other thing that I want to educate people on is that there's actually two things that are named Bitcoin. First, the network, the blockchain, is Bitcoin with a capital B usually. Uh, that's the typical style. And that is the ledger that enables people to see all the Bitcoin transactions since the moment that the Bitcoin blockchain was launched. And the uh, Bitcoin with a lowercase b is Bitcoin, the asset, which is that currency. And when you look at the um, Bitcoin white paper, that's when you kind of 
can understand that most people think of Bitcoin as just those coins, you know, that have value and it's this currency. But actually, the subtitle of the Bitcoin white paper is um, it says an electronic peer-to-peer cash system. Or sorry, what peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And so um that's really referring to Bitcoin the blockchain or Bitcoin the network. And um Ethereum, in Ethereum, it's like a little bit easier to to uh to make this differentiation because Ethereum, the network is called Ethereum, the asset itself is called Ether. Now, to go into why it is that Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency versus why Ether is a different type of crypto asset, I'll just very simply explain. Bitcoin is designed as um, it has a limited supply of 21 million coins. And because it was meant to be this electronic, uh, peer-to-peer electronic cash, that is, you know, what we would consider a currency except electronic, right? And so... Um, you know, what Satoshi was going for really was like money. However, the fact is that because of the 21 million coin limit, it is true that nowadays, most people probably use Bitcoin more as a form of what they call store of value or digital gold. Um, Because you've probably heard the stories. There are people who, you know, bought, uh, like the most famous example is somebody who was the first person to ever spend or actually he didn't spend the Bitcoins, but he posted on Reddit or some forum, I would love it if someone would use Bitcoins to buy me a pizza. And so, or or no, he, sorry, he bought him, him, I want to pay someone Bitcoins to get a pizza. So he spent 10,000 Bitcoins to get these two pizzas. Those are clearly the most expensive pizzas in history. (laughs) 10,000 Bitcoin nowadays, that, I mean, that's just a huge sum of money. So um, like probably hundreds of millions of dollars. Did you... Very expensive um, pizza. But so spe- speaking of sort of cryptocurrencies as a store of value, and before we were talking about sort of, you know, some people define, defining it as sort of magic internet money. Um, one of the things that I think everyone is probably aware of and reading about in the past couple of weeks has related to to um FTX right so it's been very hard to avoid the name Sam Bankman-Fried or SBF as he's known um and for those who haven't been following this is the sort of crypto debacle du jour i think um and SBF is the founder and now the former CEO of FTX which were, until only a couple of weeks ago was sort of a high flying crypto exchange storing huge amounts of value that um, has subsequently crashed and burned and seems to be bringing a lot of crypto down with it. So obviously this is, I think, a very complicated story. Um, And I'm just wondering, like the guy who was, you know, FTX, as you mentioned earlier to me, you know, was just launched in 2019, but somehow in this time, SBF was managed to, position himself as the 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 face of a new era of crypto respectable that good guy and then i guess my question is what has happened <laughs> like how did it crash and burn like this okay so so yeah so this is um this is a a complex story um but what we'll do is we'll start with how sam started which is sam bankman fried was a trader and he had experience doing, you know, trading in a more traditional financial venue. And then he discovered crypto and decided to do trading in crypto. 
the trading firm he launched was Alameda Research. And then about a year afterward in 2019, he launched FTX, which is a cryptocurrency exchange. Now, people should understand the way a trader operates is very different from the way that at least a crypto exchange operator should operate. <laughs> and the reason is that a crypto exchange is really um, probably at its core, mainly a security company, frankly, because for anybody who's been following crypto for a while, or even if you haven't been, you'll probably notice that a lot of the headlines are about crypto exchanges getting hacked. The most famous of these was Mt. Gox in 2014. And then, um, you know, there was another one uh, in 2016 called Bitfinex. And that story was in the news earlier this year because the people who were laundering those coins were arrested. And the um, it was a couple. And the woman in the couple was an amateur rapper who went by the name RazzleCon. So that kind of stormed the internet for a little while there. Um, but the point is that a lot of people who run crypto exchanges understand that they are constantly being attacked. And the reason is because, as we discussed, you know, uh, Bitcoin was designed as electronic cash, right? And if you think about it, if you lose cash, you are not going to get it back unless whoever stole it or picked it up from you is going to give it back to you. And it's the same with any crypto. You cannot call your bank or the crypto exchange or customer service somewhere to get, you know, to file a, a fraudulent charge and have the transaction reversed. That does not exist because these are decentralized networks. And once the money goes from one person to another or one address to another, it won't go back unless, you know, someone sends it back to you. Right. So um, that's why when crypto exchanges get hacked, that's like a, a huge, huge, you know, um, like five alarm fire for them, basically. And so many of them, they're very conscious of security. Now, the thing is like, you know, traders, they're kind of, they're a little bit, they just want to kind of keep making money. So the point, the reason why I'm saying all this is that what eventually came to light is that um, multiple people, first of all, by the way, before this big debacle, pointed out that there's kind of a conflict of interest here because Alameda was trading on FTX. And so since they have the same owner, are they getting some kind of insider information that helps them kind of basically make smarter trades and profit at the expense of everybody else that's trading on the exchange? You know, how does that relationship work, et cetera? So even before all this, that question of whether or not there was a dividing line between the two entities came up. Now, um, the way all this got started uh, that, you know, resulted in all these headlines is that in early December, November, uh, um, a crypto publication called Coindesk released what they said was a balance sheet of Alameda from, it was like from June. Now, um, what was interesting about that balance sheet, so Alameda had this reputation as being, you know, one of the best crypto trading firms. But when you looked at the balance sheet, one of the tokens that the balance sheet was heavily reliant on was a coin called FTT. And surprise, surprise, the reason why the name sounds similar to FTX is because it's the coin of the FTX exchange. You can think of that as sort of like McDonald's coin or like Starbucks, you know, points or whatever, where when you use it on the exchange, you get either rewards or discounts or whatever. There's just a benefit to using it. But the thing is, there aren't that many entities around the world that like have a super vested interest in having this coin other than, you know, FTX or you know, Alameda, basically, because they're both owned by the same person. 
And when you looked at kind of the total amount that was in circulation versus the amount that they had on their balance, the Alameda had on their balance sheet, it became very apparent if they were to actually try to realize the paper value of those coins, they could never do it because if they were to sell all those in the open market, the price would crash. And so people began to realize like, oh, wait, Alameda is not on really strong financial ground here. And so interestingly, years ago, when the, so I just saw somebody ask, what's a crash? Like when the price crashes, like, you know, if it was like $25, it goes to close to zero. So back when FTX launched, um, somebody named Changpeng Zhao invested in FTX. And Chengpeng Zhao goes by CZ. He's one of the most famous people in crypto because he is the CEO and founder of the number one biggest, most successful crypto exchange globally. It has like, I don't know, 70, 80% of trading volume worldwide. It's just like super, super dominant. And CZ had actually invested in FTX back in the day. But then as the two, as FTX and Binance, Binance is the name of CZ's exchange, as FTX and Binance became more competitive with each other, Sam Bankman-Fried eventually bought out CZ's stake in FTX. And when he made the payment to buy him out, he made part of the payment in FTT tokens. So after this article by Coindesk showing the Alameda balance sheet came out, CZ tweeted, hey, you know, we're we're realizing like, this FTT coin isn't maybe the best coin for us to hold. We're going to sell what we have. He, you know, he said, I have $580 million worth of this. And interestingly, this, and this is like a pivotal moment, the CEO of Alameda, Caroline Ellison, this is like sort of the moment when it all went wrong. <laughs> she tweeted at him, I'll happily buy it all from you at $22. I, it was trading at like 24, 25. Uh, all the traders in the world immediately were like, what's important about $22? So they are all now trying to see if they can get the price below $22. They realize this is an important price for Alameda. And CZ, by the way, said, no, 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 we're not going to do a backdoor deal, backroom deal. We're going to sell all these on the open market, do it like, you know, a more above board way. And so people began to kind of get worried also about what's What's the situation at FTX? So customers began withdrawing and requesting their assets from the FTX exchange. And this is why you might have often heard the term bank run when it comes to what happened with FTX, because the percentage of volumes they were, or, uh, withdrawals they were seeing, they just like shot up, right? And so they, they they were having delays because like, you know, just doing that, just there's, I don't know, it could take time, Right. Uh, and the reason for that is at least, I mean, now we know what the real reason was, but um, at a normal exchange, the reason why it might take time is because in order to keep the coins secure, they're often secured in what's called cold storage, which are servers or um, you know computers that are completely disconnected from the internet. Because they're, yeah, I see someone saying it's called air-gapped, meaning like not connected to the internet. And so, you know, there's like a whole ritual to ensure that no rogue employee is going to hack the exchange or that hackers can't get into it, whatever. 
And so, um, you know, when you're transferring funds from cold storage to what can either be called like a warm wallet or even a hot wallet, a hot wallet is one that's connected to the internet. It's more easily hacked. Um, exchanges typically only have, you know, whatever they need for their operations in the hot wallet. So it's a small percentage. They keep all the rest in cold storage. And then they might have these medium warm wallets where they um, they might sometimes be connected to the internet or whatever. It's basically, you know, just part of the transfer process. So anyway, point is, um, you know, that would be the reason why you might see delays at a normal exchange. But at FTX, which, what we eventually found out is that it wasn't that they were like illiquid. They were actually insolvent. They had taken the customer funds and had lent them to Alameda, the trading firm. And apparently Alameda had some trades that went bad. They were in the hole and they must have thought they could trade their way out of it. And so um, at least so far, what we know is that there's four people, including Sam Bankman-Fried himself who and Caroline, and then a few other top executives who knew about this. I don't know if more will come out, but it looks like they're about $10 billion in the hole. And so that's why FTX eventually filed for bankruptcy. And the, But one plot twist I need to mention along the way was that because FTX had such a sterling reputation, even like people like researchers who, you know, study crypto exchanges all the time, they were tweeting like the day before, like, I'm sure it's fine. Like there's this, you know, run on the exchange, but it doesn't matter. And then the next day we woke up to news that Binance was going to be acquiring FTX and that CZ and Sam had done this kind of handshake deal, which is just crazy because it's like the biggest two rivals. And then one of them says that they're going to acquire the other one. And, you know, FTX actually had a better reputation because it was seen as being more regulated and Binance was seen as being the one doing like the Uber, you know, regulatory arbitrage type thing. So Anyway, it, that ended up not happening because the books were so terrible. They didn't want to buy this this sinking ship. But um, but anyway, there were many other plot twists. But that's the gist. Hopefully, people uh, could follow that. I know it's very seems, complicated. Seems like good fodder for for your next book. Although it is all playing out in in public right now. So um, we've got a lot of questions coming in from the audience. So I'd like to go to to some of those. Um, this is from or some variation of this from a couple of TED members, um, Deb and Nicole. Um, how does how does cryptocurrency convert to actual dollars? Um, as someone mentioned about, it, it's not backed by anything, so it's confusing, right? So because it feels like anyone can just make up money and the idea of value gets cost. So how does one convert crypto into actual dollars? So any of these exchanges will will convert that for you um, as long as they list that trading pair. Um, if what you're asking is like, how is the price determined? It's just simple, you know, supply and demand. So um, that's why the FTT coin, uh, you know, the more people that um, were selling it, the more the price was dropping because then there was a greater supply, but less demand. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just say like, let's, uh, you know, I mean, this isn't referencing any um, recent events, but let's say there was a moment in time, like, well, actually what happened back in 2017, 2018 was that a lot of people wanted to buy ether in order to participate in these big crowd sales that were happening. And, um, so during that time, the price of ether went up because the supply, it was increasing like a, a little bit, there's a little bit of inflation, but the demand was just increasing well beyond that. So the price of ether just went up and up and up. And it started at like, I forget, maybe like $15 that year or something. And it went to like, at 1100 a year later. So 
Yeah. So um, given not just the FTX situation, but some of the other sort of scandalous crypto things that have happened, um, what kinds of regulations or checks and balances do you think can can prevent situations like this in in the future and and you know it seems obvious that perhaps this the the FDX situation would would at least put a bit more of a sense of urgency um on actual regulation passing yeah so um so here's something that's interesting i'm i'm going to actually say that a way to avoid this is also built into the technology itself. And um, this is actually, yeah, some some bits I wanted to get into kind of earlier on. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Ether and how, you know, uh, we didn't talk about how that's a different type of asset. It's it's also a crypto asset, but it's not a currency. And I'll explain that and you'll learn like what the purpose of Bitcoin, of Ether, of Ethereum is. And through that, we can talk a little bit about how this technology could prevent something like FTX. So um, as I mentioned, Bitcoin started as this cryptocurrency. And as people were innovating on it, Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, he could see that what they kept doing was they said, they would say, oh, I'm going to launch this new blockchain. And it has additional features to what Bitcoin has. And he thought, okay, well, if people keep doing that, then each new blockchain is just going to make the one before it sort of obsolete. So why wouldn't you create kind of a different type of blockchain that was built more around a programming language. And then any developer in the world could dream up any application and upload it the way that many uh, developers nowadays upload their own ideas for applications to the app store and our phones, right? Now, what would be different though, the reason why it wouldn't be like the Apple app store or the Google app store is that it would be decentralized. And that's the, the, key innovation with Bitcoin is that it's decentralized. With Bitcoin, this is something that's just run by people all over the globe. It's not a company. There's no you know, board or CEO or any executives. They've never hired security to run Bitcoin, etc. cetera. Um, but the incentives built into the coin will um, basically get people to contribute security to the network. And um, what I mean by that is you've probably heard of mining. So Bitcoin mining is a process by which people can kind of essentially win the new coins that are being minted by the software every 10 minutes on average. And um, what's interesting is those people think, hey, I'm just getting this you know, money that's just being created and I'm, I'm entering into this contest to win it. But when they do that, what they're doing is they are contributing security to the Bitcoin blockchain. It makes it harder to hack the more computer power you have on that network. So that incentive was just built into the coin. You didn't have to hire you know, people, an IT department to like make sure security was strong, none of that. It's literally just the incentives into the coin got people to make the network more secure. And so um, Ethereum wanted to do the same thing, to have a decentralized you know, uh, crypto asset, but also now it would be instead of a decentralized peer-to-peer um, -peer electronic cash system, it would be a decentralized computing platform. So you might've heard people sometimes say that Ethereum is a world computer or whatever, but essentially it's a place where, you know, like I said, it's an app store where you can upload these decentralized applications. So instead of 
only having Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is, um, it's only, like I said, electronic, uh, peer-to-peer electronic cash. Um, now on Ethereum, you have like, I don't know, you have like decentralized borrowing and lending protocols. You have decentralized prediction markets. You have mm-hmm. these decentralized NFT projects or whatever. I mean, there's just, there's so many different ways. So, so, so in order to participate in this sort of decentralized economy, right, what's the gating factor, right? So I own some crypto, not much because I don't truly understand it. And and um, it was surprisingly easy for me to do that through um through Coinbase. I don't actually have a wallet. So, but my sense is this is still not something that most people can participate in. Well, so you're so okay. So Coinbase, um, actually it does make it, you know, quite easy to buy and sell cryptocurrencies. Um, but when you do that, you're doing it on a centralized platform, right? Because Coinbase is controlling the whole thing and they keep their ledgers, they make sure that the amount of coins that you have on your in your account is the the amount like they're they're doing that, right? But 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 that's the easiest way for most people to quote unquote get into crypto, right? So yeah. You're going from decentralized, you're getting to the decentralized via something that is centralized. So when do we get to a point when we don't need a a Coinbase or something like that? Yeah. So for people who start by buying on Coinbase, they would then withdraw to what is called a self-custodial wallet or a self-hosted wallet, or um, sometimes it's called an unhosted wallet. And the host means it can mean like someone else is managing your private keys for you to make sure you don't lose your coins. But if you yourself are managing your own private keys, then you're the one in control of the wallet. You're the one making sure nobody hacks into it, that you don't lose it. It doesn't get burned in a fire, whatever, that you don't lose um, the private keys or the or the the password or or what's called your seed phrase. Um, I know all the, you don't need to know all these things, but the, you can think of it as simply similar to a password. Um, on Coinbase, your password will op- will open your Coinbase account. But if you yourself are managing your own private keys of your own crypto, then this quote unquote seed phrase or whatever, that just gives you access to, to your coins. So you can send them out of your wallet. So when you are interacting with crypto in this way, where you're not using an intermediary like Coinbase to do the transactions for you, but you are um, basically using your own private keys to initiate a transaction on a blockchain, then you are doing it in this decentralized fashion. And the blockchain will often, you know, let's say it has one of these decentralized applications on it. That decentralized application is usually what they call a smart contract. And you can think of it almost as like a financial vending machine. So if you have a decentralized borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum, you know, when we do borrowing and lending in the traditional financial world, like you have to go to the bank and you have to, you know, talk to people and like people are deciding, are you, what's your FICO score and are you credit worthy and whatever. But when you do it in this decentralized fashion, they don't necessarily know who you are. Um, and it's not even a they, it's literally just a software program that's been uploaded to Ethereum or, or one of these other blockchains. Got it. So um, a question from Anjali, um, which I think is timely. Um do you have a suggestion on a sort of a good 101 to read on crypto and Bitcoin and NFTs, um, like a crypto for dummies type thing? 
I mean, I can give you some stuff that I wrote. <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put that in. We'll put that in in uh, the links after after this. Um, yeah, and some podcasts. Uh, but but wait, yeah. I, I actually want to just explain how that can um, prevent an FTX kind of situation. So um, FTX, like Coinbase, is a centralized entity. So because they were mismanaging their books in this way, and you know, it looks like also committing fraud. All of that is like you can't see that. That's just in their systems. And even high-ranking executives at FTX had no idea this was going on. You know, as I said, so far, all we know is only four people knew about this. If you're doing this um, with these decentralized lending and borrowing protocols, um, because the software has rules built into it, like you can't do those kinds of things. It won't let you because it's just like a, it's like a stupid software. You know, they're called smart contracts, but in a way they like, they can't like, think beyond the the rules that have been set up. So for instance, a lot of these lenders in crypto, the centralized lenders have gone bankrupt this past summer. But what's interesting to see is that a number of them, when they were going bankrupt, in order to even get their assets out of any of the decentralized lending protocols that they were participating in, they couldn't access that money unless they followed all the rules of the protocol. So like none of this contagion hit these DeFi protocols. There there was one which we can talk about. It's not a true DeFi protocol, but it, it's sort of a separate um, situation. If you heard of that, like just set it aside. It's it's not one of the core DeFi um, protocols. But the point is that everybody was remarking that all these centralized lenders were going under. And meanwhile, all the DeFi borrowing and lending protocols were totally fine. And all the liquidations were orderly and everything was just working as um, you know, planned because nobody could mess with it. It was like the software was there, smart contracts were running, and you just can't change the rules. So, the, so the technology is there. So the 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 weak points come in when when humans start to try and figure out how to game it in a way. So, given given that, and this is a question from from um, from Dan. Um, you know, is there a way to eliminate? market manipulation if you have people trying to pump specific coins or specific crypto so for example um as ted member dan says like he gets the impression that elon musk keeps trying to pump dogecoin or is it dogecoin they never know how to pronounce it but um, yeah but you know is there a way to eliminate that kind of market manipulation so that would probably more be more like a regulatory issue because um you know that's more like policing the interme- intermediaries or pe- or people's behavior um you know unfortunately i have seen a lot of these crypto pump and dumps there it's very similar to kind of a penny stock type world um that really depends on education but yeah something that's a little bit disheartening to see is that some of the worst crypto pump and dumpers, they have like the biggest audiences and, you know, it's just, people are kind of desperate for a quick buck. So I really think actually it's more like financial education that's needed. I think I read somewhere that there's almost 20,000 cryptocurrencies around and it's it's just beggars belief that they could all have any value. Um, So, um, so given, given all that's going on, and this is another uh, question from the audience um, from Agatha, um, with, with all the recent events in crypto, do you think that the the future of crypto is is compromised? No, no, not necessarily. I definitely think that 
um, there's a lot of bad PR right now for the industry and they'll have to kind of get past that. Um, the main issue that I see is, you know, as I mentioned, um, I do think the technology uh, has built into it uh, ways to prevent things like like FTX. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the sad kind of situation that that has happened here is that Bitcoin was actually born out of the great financial pr- crisis. Satoshi, in the first block of the Bitcoin blockchain, he wrote a message and it was calling out this headline um, about a bailout for banks. And, you know, this was January 2009. So this was kind of when the great financial crisis was in full swing. And so, you know, he kind of was saying like, hey, I have this alternative to this kind of crazy situation that we have going on here. And so um, it's just very sad to see that crypto has actually created this whole world of centralized entities that literally mimic the existing financial system. And so um, those are all the ones that failed, uh, you know, these past several months. And I feel like it's it's probably a lesson more for that industry and for the people in that community to realize, like, we need to go back to our roots. We need to look at more like of these self-custody solutions that I talked about. You know, uh, there's a mantra in the crypto world, not your keys, not your coins, meaning uh, people in crypto have learned time and again, if you are not managing your own private keys and the person or entity managing it for you loses those private keys or lends it to their trading firm or, you know, whatever, like you, like at a certain point, you just might have no recourse. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see if that happens, but frankly, it'll probably be, um, a lot of regulation as well. And the one unfortunate thing about regulation is that all the current regulations, they are built assuming that there is an intermediary. So there is a risk that the regulations that they propose here will be ones that kind of force crypto to have more intermediaries, which again would create the setup that caused so that all these collapses. The purpose of crypto. I'm sorry, say that again. That defeats the purpose of crypto. Uh, yeah, according to what crypto people believe. Yeah. But like I said, those are kind of the hardcore people. There's plenty of other people in crypto who are just, they just want to buy their Dogecoin and have the price go up. So, so, it's so a- how do we, how do you think we get from a point where, so for most people, I think the predominant view of crypto is that it's, it's an asset or a, a currency, right? You speculate. How do you move from the general public sort of thinking about it in that way to some of what you're thinking about in terms of crypto writ large and the utility that will come from that, right? You said Ethereum's like a new world computer. So how do you go from crypto just being like a store of value to something totally different? Yeah, this is why so often people ask me, um, you know, either like, should I invest or how should I invest? And and I always say, no, 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 no. Think of it this way. Don't think about just putting your money on something and passively waiting for it to go up. Think about your investment as being one of education. So let's say you, you know, how you would be willing to spend like a hundred bucks on a course about crypto. Instead, you can take that $100 and you can say, okay, I'm going to learn how to make a transaction, you know, send money to like my friend in India, or they could say, um, I'm going to use a part of this money also to mint an NFT, learn how to mint an NFT. I'm going to um, buy an NFT and then sell it. I'm going to 
participate in a decentralized autonomous organization or this group of people who are kind of affiliated with a particular coin and vote on one of their proposals using my tokens. Or I'm going to, you know, use one of these DeFi borrowing and lending protocols and then use that to like educate yourself on how to use this technology. And yeah, I agree with you. It's a big hurdle because it's a completely different paradigm from what we're used to. However, mm-hmm. already, I feel like we're noticing that people are in their own way getting it when when they are really motivated. And what's fascinating is this whole NFT craze in the last few years, this is the first time where items have been denominated in they're in the native cryptocurrency. So, you know, for the longest time, like everyone would pay attention to the Bitcoin price in dollars to the Ether price in dollars. Right. Okay. These NFTs that have become very popular, the price of them is denominated in ETH or Sol, which is Solana, this other blockchain that kind of sort of competes with ETH, Ethereum, but is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not denominated in dollars. People are talking about the floor, what they call the floor price, meaning like the cheapest version of the NFT. That's denominated in Ether. Right. And you, yeah, sorry. And But here's the other thing is that those people, they're learning how to use wallets because they want to own their NFTs. So again, once they're motivated, then they kind of, you know, have to learn. I will say for myself, I have to kind of learn by doing, or I find this very hard to 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 understand. So um, another question from one of the TED members, this is from Vanessa, or, or a variation on, on her question is, um, you know, you're talking about exchanges, right? So do you envisage a world where we'll have sort of one centralized digital currency sort of, and you're not comparing it to fiat? Or is it that you know, pounds, euros, dollars disappear and where it's Bitcoin to ETH or Bitcoin to Solana and there's like 10 major digital currencies? Not really. No, I think it'll just be like the way we have email now, but we also still have the postal service. <laughs> um, it's it's just, you know, more options. I mean, like, you know, like if you look at, yeah, the stock exchange or whatever, I mean, there's just so many different kinds of financial assets. And I think it's going to be the same. Like if I think about how the internet has changed my life, you know, back in, uh, I think it was 1993 when I got my first email account. Um, you know, I, first of all, barely knew how to even check that. (laughs) Um, right. But now I wake up, I check my text messages, my WhatsApp, my like three different email accounts or four really, um, my signal, my, um, telegram, you know, Instagram, Twitter, I have tons of Twitter DMS. Like I check all those. And I think it's going to be the same way for financial transactions. I think in the future, we're going to wake up and we're going to be like, Oh, you know, um, I guess this Dow, you know, passed this proposal that I voted in and, Oh, also now, you know, someone has a bid on my NFT or, you know what? I don't know. I'm making it up because it's probably definitely not going to look like what I just said. But what I'm saying is we will have a lot more things like that, that will be financial, not just communication, like, you know, our current internet. And for for those who don't know, um, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization, correct? Yeah. And basically, can you explain that really briefly? 
Yeah. So basically it's a group of people who are kind of loosely bonded around this one coin that they all own. And the organization has some kind of mission. It can be anything. You might've heard about Constitution DAO. Uh, was that a year ago? I literally did just this whole crypto world. So crazy. But um, whenever that was, that sprang up like kind of overnight, you know, it was in the span of a week they had raised, um, I'm blanking you. I think it was like uh, close to 50 million to bid on a copy of the constitution that was being auctioned off at Sotheby's. So there's that kind of DAO, you know, but there are other kinds of DAOs where like, I don't know, they, they have like some NFT project or there's other DAOs where all they do is kind of manage these borrowing and lending protocols. There's also these like mini DAOs where they're kind of like little financial investment clubs of just friends where um, they, you know, have this little token that represents their membership, but then maybe like Simone and I are in the same kind of friends investment club, right? So maybe I know all about NFTs and I'm like really good at, you know, making money with NFTs, but she's really good at like doing DeFi, you know, trading or whatever. So we agree that everybody in the club will benefit from the returns of everyone will share it all. But like, you know, the group now benefits from my expertise in NFTs and her benefit and her expertise in DeFi. Um, And so there's just all different kinds of DAOs. So you mentioned um, stable coins just then in there somewhere. Um, can you just give a brief description for, for the audience of what a stable coin is versus, you know, Bitcoin or ETH? Yeah, it's any coin whose value is pegged to some other existing assets, such as uh, in the case of like, you know, some huge percentage of stable coins, the US dollar. Gotcha. Um, so for, for, the pe- for people who are sort of, crypto curious, let's call them. Um, do you think now is a good time to to dive in? And, and if so, sort of, you know, what's the most important thing to take into consideration and 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 how would you do it? Um, I think it's a good time to dive in, frankly, because since there's been this crash, it's a less speculative period. And what happens is during the big manias, a lot of people get their money stolen because all the predators are are out there trying to steal people's coins when they're not thinking and they're they're just like I want to get in on this deal and make a lot of money so a lot of the uh the fishers and um yeah the other people trying to hack your coins are are out there not that they're not out there right now they are it's just it's not as bad um but to that end the number one thing i would say you should do at first is learn how to secure your own coins so um, and, and what I should say is it's not even like learning. It's also deciding what works best for you because yes, we have talked now about the pitfalls of keeping your coins on an exchange. However, you know, I don't know about you, but I lose things all the time. And there are many, many famous examples of people who they had some huge amount of money on a device that they were controlling. The most famous of these was somebody who was featured in this New York Times article where he had hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin on some device. And it was a special security device where it only gave him 10 tries to open it. And um, he was on his eighth attempt at the password and it wasn't opening it. And so he was like sweating bullets because if he you know, got to the 10th try and it didn't open the wallet, then he would lose hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. So when you decide how you're going to secure your coins, yes, understand the pitfalls of putting it on an exchange, but also 
understand the pitfalls of trying to manage it yourself. There are so many ways that can go wrong. You can be fished of that money. You can lose the device. People have thrown them away. Um, you can lose your, forget your password or lose it. I mean, there's just so many ways this can go wrong. So it all, it all sounds, it all sounds terrifying. I mean, I, I think, you know, so you're basically saying I should move my coins out of Coinbase, but to set up a wallet, but I can't lose a piece of paper with the 10 words on it that, that I print out. Yeah. However, what I will say, so earlier when I said I had someone on my uh, premium offering who talked about how his wallet was uh, seeing much greater adoption just in the last few weeks, the reason is that that wallet, and there's all m- multiple like this, I, I'm not going to you know say this is the only one, um, but that one is called Zengo. Um, there's uh, some others, which I'm I'm not fully, you know, I don't know what the full list is, but um, they're basically called multi-party computational um, yeah, MPC, just MPC, uh, self-hosted wallets. And, um, the reason is they don't use things like your seed phrase. It's not as easy to like lose, um, either, you know, the keys or get locked out. Essentially the way it works is it uses, you know, a biometric aspect, um, a magic link to your email, uh, just other, other parts, like making sure that you're actually an alive person rather than the hacker showing a photo to your device. Um, they have different ways of like, you know, just having it not be, uh, you relying on yourself, uh, memorizing the, the code, you know, the, the, um, the seed phrase or like remembering what the password is or whatever. So there are new innovations that make it a much more user-friendly experience. And I imagine after this whole debacle, they'll probably you know, take off. So, so, so one of the keys, in addition to to sort of just better education on this, um, is also better user experiences, right? Oh, for right sure. Now it is. It's just hard. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I have been as a journalist, I've been covering this for seven and a half years. Every single time I try to transact. I am so confused. I can barely understand what's going on. But anyway. I, will say, I will say that this is not giving me the confidence to jump back into all of this at all. <laughs> That's um, why I said just my crypto is going to fester in my Coinbase account for, for some time. Um, so, so I do want to ask one one last question because we're gonna we're coming up to time now. So um you did a TEDx talk in 2018 um on crypto, and it was called How Crypto could allow people to be their own boss. If you were going to give a TEDx talk on crypto in 20 in in the the waning months of 2022, what would it be? Um hmm. You know, interestingly that topic works. I featured somebody on my show earlier this year who lives the life that I talked about in that talk, which was super funny. Um and I I have like never looked at that talk except one time at some point in the last year, I did look at it and there was a comment being like, oh my God, how was she talking about all this four years ago? And I was like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Cause now there is a trend of people like doing all this. And what I mean by that is this person that I featured on my show, she's a recent grad and um, you know, she got into crypto when she was in college. And so she's like, oh, I'm going to become a crypto founder. So she launched this startup. But as she got more and more into crypto, she's like, wait, a startup is centralized. Like, that's not what crypto is about. So she kind of stepped back from the the um, the startup. And now she's just like a DAO freelancer, basically. 
And it was fascinating. She gets paid from these three different DAOs. I don't know about now that I did this interview in the winter last, last year. Um, but they're, they all pay her differently. You know, one, it's more like a regular W2 situation. Another one is a 1099. And then the last one, she gets paid in their tokens. And the other funny thing is because it's this DAO, the way it works is all the community members vote on how much they think that person should be paid, essentially, which is fascinating. And so um, the amount of tokens that she gets is sort of like gets every month is determined on like, you know, she has these interactions with people every month. And then at the end, they're like, oh, I think, you know, she contributed this much or that much. And then that's how much she gets in tokens. So so so, so um, another member is asking, um, this is Bob, you know, how, how does this make the world better so is it that it, it it gives us theoretically more control over our lives yeah yeah a lot of people talk about how you can also use this technology to um just it it subverts the whole typical social media model where the social media platform has all your data and then they sell it to advertisers and so you're you know as you've probably heard you are the product but um you can use this to own your own data and then you can, yeah, be more in control of, of those. So we are still the product, but we own our own data. In in a truly decentralized world, we are technically still the product, but because we own the data, we are better off for it. No, no. Then, you, well, kind of, but yeah, you would be the one in control of selling it. Like if you decide to sell it somewhere, then you are the one making the money, not not like the platform. Got it. Got it. Like you, um, you decide, yeah, to sell the money or to sell the data, and then you earn that money. Right. Okay. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, so uh, I want to thank everybody for engaging and sending in great questions. Um, you can all follow Laura on Twitter at Laura Shin. Um, listen to her podcast. I would definitely read the book, um, The Cryptopians. It is a lot of fun. I read it and I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed it, actually. Um, so, Laura, I know that. Everything that's going on right now is keeping you very, very busy. Um, but any final words? What's next for you? A new book? Something like that, maybe? Yeah, I mentioned the RazzleCon, I think. Did I mention that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I will be coming out with a narrative podcast on that and a book. And I will do something with the FTX thing. We'll see. I'm not sure yet what that is. But otherwise check out my podcast unchained we also put out a daily newsletter and a weekly newsletter and you know we're on youtube and twitter and everywhere so yeah just join us great thank you so much laura this has yeah, been a lot of fun um it's really great thank you all right that's our show thanks for listening ted tech is part of the ted audio collective this episode was produced by isabel carter who also wrote it with me sherelle dorsey our editor is Jimmy Gutierrez. Special thanks to Farah DeGrunge for her support as a project manager. The show is fact-checked by Julia Dickerson. I'm Sherelle Dorsey. Let's keep digging into the future. Join me next week for more.